Hi, I'm E.B. Smith. I'm an actor, director, all-around storyteller coming to you from Athens, Ohio. And I'm Adai Moon. I'm a playwright, director, dramaturg, and cultural worker coming to you from Atlanta, GA. And you are listening to the Old Heads Podcast. A deep dive into the struggle from behind the theater curtain. How are you tonight, Adai? Man, I am fine. Me and my screwball peanut butter whiskey are just doing marvelously. Who in the hell puts peanut butter and whiskey, up, man? I'm done. I'm done. <laughs> Delicious. But I got my straight bourbon here, so I salute <laughs> you, my friend. We have an awesome, awesome show tonight. We have a fantastic <laughs> guest, a dear friend of mine, Robert Barry Fleming, the artistic director at uh, Actors Theater Louisville. I met him in Cleveland when he was working at the Cleveland Playhouse. Um, but without further ado, here he is. How are you tonight, Robert? I'm good, man. Thank you for having me on the show. Man, thank you for coming. Thank you so much for coming on. It is a, it's a joy to have you. Great being here. So, you know, we can jump right in. I mean, we've been we've been talking a little before we started the recording too, but uh I, I did want to give a little bit of introduction to you and uh and where you're from. Um uh, and you're from Kentucky originally, are you not? I sure am. I grew up here from five to seventeen in Frankfurt, about sixty uh miles away, sixty minutes away from Louisville, and um, and I have been back for a year and two months. It's been uh, as eventful as I think this year's been for everybody. Oh, Indeed, it's very powerful coming home after this many years to uh, be of service to my community and be able to create art here. It's mm-hmm. a real privilege. So tell me, how did you find your way from a small town in Kentucky, if I'm not mistaken? Yes, out to the world of of professional theater and then back home. Man, it's. It is so much a story of being in the right place at the right time. You know, I I read Malcolm Gladwell's book about the outliers, and I said, that book makes so much sense to me that um, it is good fortune and circumstances so frequently that you get certain kind of opportunities. And I, as a five, six-year-old, happened to live next door to Dr. Winona Fletcher, who was something of a legend in American theater. Mm-hmm. No idea. She was just Mrs. Fletcher to me, but she needed a Travis for her raisin in the sun. Asked my brother. He was like, nah, I don't want to do that. And I was like, oh, I want to do it. I want to do it. And man, she just initiated me into this amazing world. And it's like to be at a black land grant institution, mm-hmm. that had acting program. Um, I was working with these college students under her tutelage. And she's just such a remarkable, exceptional woman. And so yeah. learned in the discipline, um, just an absolute unsung genius. Uh, and uh, that was my first time doing anything in the theater. So, I, you know, right from the jump, I, I was looking at Black excellence. I was looking at someone who had discernment and expertise and such care and love for her people. That was extraordinary to just have that as the entryway. And, in, and, you know, those formative experiences, man, they, they're at the foundation of what everything else gets to be compared to. But it was uh, a great level setting. And for an a extraordinary Black woman to be the one who ushered me into this discipline. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, you know, of course, I had an extraordinary mother as well, who even before that happened with, like, taking her boys to the Chinese opera and mm. to puppet shows and museums. And we sit there in them four hour operas and sleep. <laughs> but I think there was something 
osmosis wise, just being around all of that great art and having these beautiful black women introduce us to that mm-hmm. and uh, have um, like my father who that wasn't his thing. He loved Star Trek and TV and all that. Uh, but they both had a great love of storytelling. And so for mm-hmm. me, I think that just set the foundation of this is a legit way, legit something to dedicate your life to. And I haven't looked back since, you know, uh, yeah. from then forward, I was like, oh, this is what I'm going to do with the rest of my life. No question. So you jumped at the chance to go back home to Kentucky. I did, man. It was like, you know, there's been a certain uh, virulent brand of uh, nostalgia that's kind of infused this country. But there's also a good kind, I think, to kind of get back to your fundamental uh, sense of who you are. And if you are a storytelling machine or you love to be a part of that process, we know there's nothing like a good collaborative theatrical experience to really give you a chance to live that and embody Mm -hmm. when it's good it's so so good and so fulfilling and of course when it's bad it's just so ugly but (laughs) you know still worthwhile you know nothing's perfect um and i am just grateful to be able to continue to be engaged that way Mm -hmm. right Now, now i mean i mean being raised and cultivated by a brilliant black artist like dr fletcher what do you think that's given you as a person now who's running a predominantly white institution? Like, mm-hmm. what, what does she give you in those formative years that you think is, is something new and fresh that people who are used to art from a more dominant perspective aren't privy to? Well, you know, it's interesting. I, you know, I always was like, there's something about Sidney Poitier that's just different from other, other Black men or other Black artists. You know, there would be certain artists that I always... I said, there's something about them. There's a certain kind of, and I was perceiving a certain self-possession and Mm -hmm. a certain sense of um, me being excellent is just a given. It's not something about being an exceptional Negro. It's about, Mm -hmm. I am a part of excellence and that is not foreign to anyone of my profile. That's as much of a given as it is to anybody else. So I Mm -hmm. think having a formative experience with Dr. Fletcher and being around students who were engaged in that way, even though they were learning and certainly didn't have her expertise, she set such a high bar effortlessly mm-hmm. and with such care and such um, humanity and love that for me, it was like, that's always been associated with Black people and Black art making. And it's not exceptional. It's not okay. unusual. It's not... Mm-hmm wow, you're a unique one. It's like, <laughs> you're different. Everybody was good and everybody was about the work and everybody was about respect and love and um, celebrating our stories. You know, to be introduced to the field through Lorraine Hansberry's work and, you know, and many years later understanding who she was descended from in terms of who her father was. Mm-hmm. You know, like learning to have context to understand how that narrative made its way into the world, that uh, she too had a a deep sense of value and understanding of herself in a radical way for a country that uh, diminishes Blackness and fetishizes Black achievement and excellence as if it's something unique and like, wow, how'd that happen? As opposed to Hmm. that's just kind of what we're about, that kind of excellence. I always have a sense of that somewhere deep in my core, no matter how colonized in over the years my thinking might have gotten or 
how brainwashed in a certain kind of dominant culture ideology of my inferiority or all those narratives that were working overtime to try to instill and root themselves in me in my art. They just couldn't get fully rooted because I had this formative kind of armor Mm -hmm. Um, I having a real experience as a a Black human being that even on this continent could understand my value and understand the value of our people and understand who we actually, how we do, you know, that's very, very, very different than I think what a lot of people have. And I was lucky. I have to say that's like, that was luck to be born with two PhDs that had the foresight to say, He's not going to the public school right away. We're going to send him to Rosenwald. <laughs> Black folks. Um, uh, George Wolf's mother was my first grade principal. Oh, wow. wow. Anna Wolf. So my first experience in a classroom was around all Black folks, all Black excellence. Mm-hmm. They recognized that as something that was important in a country that had such a virulent bias at its root. We have to inoculate this child before he has to encounter that. So they Mm -hmm. were very strategic about making sure that was my first experience in a school and that my first experience in a theatrical venue was in those confines. And I think that has served me for 51 years to have had that at five years old was formative, deeply important, and has kept me alive and here and engaged in art. Right. So, so I mean, speaking of black excellence, you, I, I'm very curious because I'm sort of making this transition myself about when you moved from the world of performing into the world of administration and what precipitated that change. Well, you know, I think I was coming up against wall after wall of saying, if you want to work in this arena as a black, queer, middle-aged person, here's where your boundaries are. Mm. You know, at a certain point, it's like, you know, I got a lot of fight in me. I got a lot of fight in me. But it's like, how much fight do I want to do like 24-7? Because at this point, I'm 56. I still got a couple of decades if I don't wear myself out. But at some point, like trying to keep fighting for something that a a whole system is just saying, hey, here's the space in which you can work. Mm -hmm. And that being too limited or not really in any way feeling challenging or uh, giving me an opportunity to really be of service, just stop being viable options for engagement. So at a certain point, given where I was in my professional acting career, there were just certain walls. If you were a queer actor, if you were working out in LA trying to do that TV film thing, it's like, you know, I kind of got some things, got some opportunities. By the time I, I got a, a, a one scene in an Oscar winning film, I was so burnt out. I was like, I, I got my LA confidential credit. I had my manager. I had all that stuff going. And I, I just went, the amount of time, energy, intelligence, craft, craftiness that it took to kind of get into this position to make this possible is not the best use of the rest of my adult time. Mm-hmm. There's not going to be enough return on investment for that to make sense. I'm not going to be able to be at the fullest service and fullest fulfillment, I think, for myself, even personally. Mm-hmm continuing to pursue this. So I I pretty quickly after that, I said, I need to rethink. I had my off-Broadway lead at the public. I had my movie. I had a couple of guest spots in a series. And it's like, okay, that looks like a resume for an actor. Let's yeah. move on. 
and like, let's explore some other things and stay in that learning mode. Go to some things that you don't, you don't have that track record in, that yeah. you still have a lot to learn, that you will have to endeavor with humility, mm. will be challenges. And so that started to broaden what I did. I, I never thought of myself as quitting acting. I just thought I'm taking this skill set and broadening it and saying, what are the things that uh, I can continue to contribute and be of service in by expanding the options? Mm -hmm. So so what did you find challenging about moving into that space from, from the acting world? I mean, did you did you run into things you didn't expect? There's no shortage of definitions of what you can and can't do, especially when you're a black man and a mm -hmm. queer one in North America. It's like every step of the way, it's like, oh, you can't be a you can't be a singer. You're a dancer. You can't be a dance. You, you can't be a dancer. You're a gymnast. You can't be a actor. You're a singer dancer. And it's like, but I think after you meet those kinds of things over and over again, it's like you get a rhythm for resistance. And so when people are like, you can't be a director or you can't be a choreographer or you can't be an artistic leader, I just always had the, oh yeah, I've done, we've done this dance before. I know what this dance mm. is. This is about you gaslighting me mm. and others. Like mm -hmm. this is a pattern that most people go through if they try to evolve. So it's not personal. I'm not the first person it's ever happened to. It's happened to everybody who's ever tried to make these pivots. So don't take it so personally. Just recognize what are the signifiers for those folk to give you the keys to the car. Just get enough to get the keys to the car so you can keep learning, keep growing. And that's all I would do. I just keep going what would be the thing that for the dominant culture would signify, oh, no, we need to give him a shot or he's serious? What's the code? And um, you just get better and better at figuring out what that is because it's usually very predictable because so many people have had to do it before you. So often it's just learning from other people saying, how'd you make that pivot? And they'd offer their version of it and you go, oh, I see where my path probably is mm -hmm. given hearing your story. You know? mm -hmm. So, so you're 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 one year back home mm -hmm. in in the south. Yes, at an institution that has a reputation for for really focusing on new work. What are some of the challenges that you've encountered this past year, specifically as it relates to actors theater? Yeah, the you know the vision I think um, has evolved in terms of the medium, but not necessarily the 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 media itself or the message itself. Mm -hmm. There was a movement to make the company uh, the most equitable and uh, inclusive environment that it could possibly be. Lots of people went to the mat to make it even possible for me to be there. So there was a lot of groundwork laid before me. You know, I, I have no exceptional Negro story to offer because <laughs> some other folks laid that groundwork before I even was thought of. You know, I can't take credit for that. And even to this day, the people who surround me are absolutely exceptional at what they do. It's, I simply couldn't do what I'm doing if I didn't have exceptional people around me. So there are a number of extraordinary artists, artisans, administrators, producers, chief financial officer, my chief external relations officer, my artistic manager. These people are just, they're brilliant. So we're working together to uh, 
really continue that vision, but we've been doing it on a digital platform mm-hmm. uh, with the COVID-19 pandemic and then uh, the other public health crisis with the reckoning with systemic racism. That has rocked Louisville. It has brought it all home because of Breonna Taylor's murder, because of the murder of David McAtee. These deaths have resonated across the globe, not only in our community and, and laid bare some of the challenges we've had for some time from a legacy of plantation capitalism and the vestigial realities of what that does to a community and the interactions in that community. Louisville, for me, gets to be that microcosm for the whole nation. It might be amplified because it has a very specific permutation in this ecosystem, but there's no city our size that doesn't have many of the same challenges with just slightly different details, as evidenced by the movement that we've seen across the country and across the globe. Mm-hmm. And I think that's the thing that I feel most empowered by, that in spite of whatever obstacles personally or structurally or that the natural realities of revenue generation for live events coming to a complete halt on March 12th, right. like we simply can't figure out the economies of scale at this juncture to regather and do that kind of work, has led us to have to innovate, rethink. And, you know, with every challenge, there have been opportunities that we've been able to respond to. I, I'm thrilled by the fact that by starting a podcast, by starting a Facebook Live events, by starting a weekly unscripted panel, that we've been able to speak to the moment in ways that you never can in the theater. It's like, you know, unless you had a news program or you already had a radio station, you can't be that timely with your responses. You have to do that season and you hope you're somewhat prescient in hitting things large enough that they resonate. But it's been powerful to be able to have that kind of tripod of activity to kind of get engaged with your our community. We've also been able to partner with our restaurant and turn that into a community kitchen in honor of David McAdee. Oh, that's fantastic. That's fantastic. 260 people a week in wow. uh, West Louisville with that. We've been able to do residencies in schools around our project, the Ali Summit, written by Idris Goodwin, where we're working with kids on Zoom continuing to develop the spoken word and the movement base of this project with an open studio development project to really include the community in the development of the piece. So the sense of ownership and agency and interactivity, in spite of the isolation, ironically, is has been increased by these two public health crises that were inevitable. You know, you know these things based on uh, how things were set up were inevitable. And I think we were already in preparation unwittingly for a moment like this because we were already moving in this direction. But this has just laid it bare and said, you know, where's the line in the sand of where you stand in these conversations and these actions? Fortunately, we already had enough momentum in this direction that it was, you got to figure out the medium, but you know what you're about. You know what you're trying to accomplish, and you know your mission is about unlocking human potential, building community, enriching lives through theater. And so mm-hmm. we've been, we take that to heart and gives us something bigger than ourselves because uh, I certainly have an enormous ego and need to have something bigger than myself <laughs> in order to really keep that in its appropriate space. So I find our mission, those three elements, very, very inspiring that we can do through storytelling, those things. And uh, I, I feel very, very uh, honored that I get to work with other people who feel as invested in those uh, those realities and those needs. I mean, this, this really evinces an idea for me of, of arts leadership as activism mm. and community 
engagement. And are you finding that uh, through the trauma, let's face it, that we've been living through this year, particularly through the violence that's that's permeated the community in Louisville, mm-hmm. uh, you're finding a way to not only inject that sort of hope and forward moving in the in the narratives you're creating, but also engagement with new as yet untapped communities. Yeah, you know, man, I think there's um like we look at the history of theater and I think some of us hear one thing or see one thing and others see and hear other things. You know, when I think about the roots of what theater was, I'm thinking about the civic engagement. I hear the civic mm-hmm. kind of town crier, intersectional kind of engagement that one actor that turned into more actors and turned into a chorus, like what their function was, was far more essential than like, I'm just going to let you have a good time at the theater to forget your troubles at eight o'clock. And Mm -hmm. at 10 o'clock, y'all go out and have drinks and, you know, forget all about what you saw. It just seemed to have a much more essential function and more like community circles or what Mm -hmm. I think in some ways we would equate civic town halls or like, you know, where people were truly having a dialogue. Mm -hmm. And I've always been attracted to the artists and art makers who seem to always have that as a part of their engagement. And sometimes those people were working with uh, emergent technologies. Sometimes they were working in a very poor theater way, but they seemed to all feel like the plays had to be about something. Right. And, and those things sure. mean that they weren't funny. Like I, I remember seeing Ron Vauder before he died of AIDS with the Wooster Group do a, a show where he was both Jack Smith and uh, maybe it was Roy Cohn or something. It's like, it, like he just did this one man show. It was like, it was crazy <laughs> and amazing. You know, at, at, or or watching um, Abdul Reza's work at the oh LATC. Where mm-hmm. it, like, it was like sound, 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 or the Pomo Afro Homos or the Five Lesbian Brothers or so many artists that for me were just, uh, I was gobsmacked. And I was like, man, I hope I grow up to be that kind of courageous, bold adventurous artist that's just digging in and telling stories and investigating the human condition in a way that is just so bold, you know? And it was fun for me because like so much of the stuff, like sometimes the stuff just didn't work. You know, it's like, I, I mean, I used to love yeah. Wooster Group or um, Builders Association. And and I don't know that I always found the narrative the most fascinating thing or watch Robert Lepage do something. It's like, there's all kinds of artists that I was like, there's just things that they were doing that just seemed old. And of course, for me, Peter Brook is like, I ran all over the globe trying to catch anything Peter Brook did. Just like if he was somewhere, I was just trying to somehow be in that room. Mm-hmm. Um, Ariane Manushkin. There's just so many artists that had my social location and then had so distant my social location that mm-hmm. made me feel like a global citizen and that they were all investigating the human condition in ways that I was inspired by. And they didn't have to be perfect. They were like so many of my heroes uh, have been so flawed in so many different ways, but in ways that I thought were not about abusing other humans, but about just trying to explore something and being okay with it failing just because they were after a truth. They were after a question that they felt passionate about. So I just couldn't wait to be in spaces where that kind of excitement and risk-taking was an integral part of the art making. And, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, it's interesting to find ourselves like in formulas 
of how you're supposed to do things and just kind of think, none of that's interesting to me. How do we do the thing that interested in this in the first place? You know, what do you have to do to make that happen? So that's been the big question Mm. that whether I'm working as the artist or I'm supporting artists, we just opened a digital show, the Keep Going song. Critics pick Ben Brantley, New York Times today, just four hours ago. All right. Congratulations. Um, You know, that's sweet. But in a way, it's like, yeah, who gives a F? You know, because it's actually like, (laughs) would you you actually have a review of uh, Occupy movement or protest? You know, it's like, this is the basis of activism to explore the the experience. So that's not a slight on, on the reviewer or the review or the value of it. It has its place. It's just to say the conversations we were having about the work and what we hope the work to achieve and the kind of agency we wanted to see happen out of that was so much more about letting the artist's vision really lead this moment rather than all the conventions of my institution structure and what is expected and blah, blah, blah. You know, it's like, you know, you all are remarkable, fascinating human beings and artists, you have something to say about this moment. That's what we want. That's what we want to see realized. And so we want to give you resource to make that happen. And I trust it's going to do all the other things it needs to do. It's like, we can't do the thing of like trying to second guess what's the dominant culture want from us. We just got to do the thing that you're going to do that is kind of radically like, I can't prioritize that. I have to prioritize what needs to be said from my impulse as an artist, first and foremost. And uh, we had a just glorious time. And this was all captured in quarantine. You know, they're doing it at their in their house in Dayton, Ohio with family. And yet we had this absolutely remarkable collaboration. And I think the work that's come out of it is deeply heartfelt and deeply ferocious and fierce. And and I think that might be what is being responded to, you know, and it, it feels like that's what needs to be foregrounded first and foremost. And we did that with Hannah Drake, Fix It Black Girl. We did that with Lance G. Newman's Finding Black Boy Joy as, a, as part of the summer where we were sharing that work that was so immediately resonant and speaking to what it's like to be a Black woman and asked to fix a mess that wasn't of your creation or to be a Black man and try to navigate the vicissitudes of what that is, whether you are a senior or a queer youth millennial or a middle-aged, you know, just being able to speak to those experiences unfiltered. Mm-hmm. Uh, platform to just let the voice sing has been so liberating and so affirming, I think, to all the different ways humanity manifests. And it doesn't always look like what most of what we get, you know, it looks as rich and as diverse as we are as a species. And uh, so it's been a glorious time in that way, even though it's been an absolutely turbulent and difficult time. I think it's given us the opportunity to say, what's important about the storytelling we're doing today? Yeah. And I, I, I had a chance to see uh, Black Boy Joy, which was f- fucking amazing. <laughs> I love, man. It was so man. fantastic. And it was so exciting to see those brothers like really go all out. And I have to do a shout out to Erica Denise, who was the facilitator of both those projects. Okay. 
uh, Erica Denise, who is a multi-talented artist, uh, administrator, and leader. She's a brilliant woman um, and has brought added such value to Actors Theater of Louisville. And, and, and after watching that piece, though, and it's, it's interesting that you mentioned all, all those kind of combustible artists from the late 80s and 90s, like Homo Afro Homo. I was a big fan of like Lori Carlos. And, oh, yeah. And, 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 and like Robbie McCauley. And it's interesting to me that you had all these, uh, this exciting, amazing Black art in that time period that was very much centered in telling stories to Black audiences. And, and it seems mm -hmm. that now, most of the more radical Black art is very much centered in telling stories to white audiences. Mm. Yes. So yes. that's been an interesting Oh, that's yeah. an interesting observation. Yes. And yeah. which is why uh the Black Boy Joy piece was so exciting to me. Cause I'm like, you know, this is an experimental piece. They're using poetry, they're dealing with issues of masculinity. But it's obvious this is for black folk. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. As an administrator, how how important do you think it is for us to really start thinking about programming with black audiences in mind? Well, yeah, I mean, it's, it's, and this is why, you know, I'm, I'm going to start an acting class, teaching an acting class at University of Louisville in their African-American theater program, their uh, certificate program uh, tomorrow. And one of the things I'm most excited about in, in the training is that, um, you know, I do have some acting texts, but that's like, I'm like, as an African-American artist, I, I can help you with rhetoric, find your operatives, what your action is. We can do that in a week. We, and then just keep working on that. The mm -hmm. thing that I think we need now is like, we need critical race training. We need yeah. to um, mm -hmm. be first in uh, Jason Reynolds and uh, Ibram X. Kennedy's Stamped. You need to have consciousness and action by Raul Quinones Rosado. You need to understand an indigenous root of what it is to embody a sense of self-possession and learning to listen actively as a person who is under very specific cultural circumstances at this moment in time, mm -hmm. any of them deeply distorted and pathological, which would make you think something's wrong with you right. as opposed to, oh no, you're living in a space where people are like, yes, the earth is flat. And it's like, yeah, no, <laughs> I'm sure Copernicus and uh, Galileo's clear and circular. If you don't agree with us, we will burn you at the stake. I mean, it's like, we're living in one of those kind of moments mm -hmm. where people will gaslight you about things that I think are very clear and evident. And one of those is programming and creating art for one monolithic group exclusively is going to be problematic in any way, shape, or form. If you are not thinking about different voices for different audiences, you're going to miss what your fundamental call is. You know, it's like, how do I have a conversation with you if I'm only speaking Southern English and you are Yugoslavian? <laughs> you know what I mean? It's like, we're not having a conversation. I'm just saying, you understand me, right? <laughs> And, you know, you're sitting there without any context. You know, we're trying to find a way to just say we clearly have uh, incredible wealth. The wealth that is concentrated in our ecosystem is based on plantation capitalism. Mm -hmm. That has led to a certain level of inequity in terms of whose story is foregrounded and whose is subordinated, how competition works how um, separateness and community work. When someone says community, you know the tone, which means if you're included or if you're not when they're mm -hmm. saying that. 
I think for all of us, it's this moment of we have to increase our critical consciousness because no one's going to do it for us. The educational system's not going to do it for us. Law and policy is not going to do it for us. We have to lead. The social sciences are not going to do that inherently for us because they are of a system that subordinates people of certain profiles. And once you know that, you know that about everything that you're encountering. And it's not personal, it's systemic, it's structural. And making it personal just diverts you from where your attention needs to be. It's like, no, let, let's make it clear. The system thinks you don't count. The system is working to erase you. The system is subordinating you and separating you and compromising you. So understanding that, you begin to approach your literature with a very different lens. Right. Um, where you're navigating maybe what does that do to the human animal when that is happening? Are they hypervigilant? Are they reactive most of the time, as opposed to having a sense of agency? Do they feel flooded and overwhelmed and need to medicate? Then you begin to understand your dramatic text and the roadmap, understand the structural and systemic lens in which they were written. Mm. And you can also intuitively or cognitively see oh, this was written for the white gaze. This wasn't written for me. This was written to translate for someone else's reception. What do I want to do with that as the interpretive artist or the generator of this production? Do I want to lean into that? Do I want to resist that? Do I want to radicalize that? Mm -hmm. Um, And also just kind of understanding you might not get that Critics Times review (laughs) if you try (laughs) They may want to slap your hand for choosing to privilege something other than their experience. So so being very fluid about the value of those things inherently to your creative instrument and your your being to say, the marker for me remains Dr. Winona Fletcher. What would Dr. Winona Fletcher do? Yeah, exactly. We're kind of wading into an area we we touched on before we started the recording tonight, because you mentioned rigor uh, and discipline and that quite demonstrable literacy, not only in the space around how we choose what to produce and how we produce it, but also how we talk about it, how we activate with that work, and also how we confront this industry that we're a part of. I wonder if you can speak to that a little bit, because it seemed we, we did an episode a couple of a couple episodes ago about the conversation and about having mm-hmm. these discussions within our community that have oftentimes sort of devolved into this trauma circle where we mm-hmm. we sort of spill our guts. And the concerning part about that is it feels like that trauma is sort of geared towards the white gaze to sort of evoke guilt or a sense of responsibility. But there doesn't seem to be a whole lot of strategy associated with that. Right, right. And how does that rigor piece fit into how we're talking about the art on an industrial level? And, you know, this is the best part for me in working in a predominantly white institution as a Black, queer, middle-aged leader. Like most people are younger, although I do have a fair share of peers as we're particularly working on a skeleton crew at this moment where we're all furloughing and taking pay cuts and doing, you know, what we can to just keep rolling along. But one of the things we had to create a space where we could have generative conflict and talk about things that, you know, Kentucky, when I grew up here, the catchphrase was, you know, you don't talk about sex, religion or politics in mixed company. And I don't know if that was just Kentucky or if that's just North America, if everybody kind of got Especially that. Especially Canada. Let me tell you. <laughs> that's okay, so, 
<laughs> well, that might just be a, a, a North American kind of uh, ethos, which is a guarantee to keep you in stasis, a guarantee to keep you in trauma if there's trauma, because you can't talk about any of the things. You can't talk about the sexual trauma. You can't talk about the political divisions that are so deep. You can't talk about the religious overtones or the spiritual overtones that people have inculcated and bringing that trauma with them from other countries to this continent and how that's informing so much of those intersections of those things coming together. You know, when you're in a country that is foundationally built on conquest, enslavement, misogyny, and capitalism, you are already starting with a, a powder keg. And if mm -hmm. you can't have dialogue, if you can't articulate the dynamics of what that means and the impacts of what that means and that there's no space to articulate that there's no space to respond to that in a constructive way and i think that's part of the tragedy of the country that you know let's just pretend it didn't happen this disassociative thing as a strategy of navigating this thing becomes deeply rooted in all practice you know in all industries and knowing that capitalism intricately bound to maintaining these these power structures yeah. means that there's a piece of that that's always going to be fused and tied. Mm. I think this is a moment where we're really getting to reevaluate, well, what is profitable and what is wealth? You know, I heard Brian Stevenson, I think, it was saying the opposite of poverty is not wealth. It is justice. That's right. Yeah. And um, I, and I think that is so deeply resonant for me, the understanding mm. of like when you see just in my lifetime, the increased uh, incarceration of Black men with three strikes, really for small, petty crimes, not for, like, violent crime apparently has stayed pretty even, even though people are like, you know, it's working. It's like, it's not working. You have a disproportionate number of a certain profile of American incarcerated, which is carrying on a tradition of criminalization of a, a group of people, to the impoverishment of this whole nation, you know, mm -hmm. to have structures like that, to have, to watch a Ruth Bader Ginsburg have to make a case to a whole court of men, yeah, there's a glass ceiling for women and they say, hey, I don't see it. I just don't get it. And it's like, okay, so I'm going to have to build these cases, let you see a man get discriminated against mm. so that you can understand how that works, you know? Yeah, you have to use them in incrementally into it so they understand it. You know, and based on thoroughgood Marshall's uh, mm -hmm. you know, strategies, clearly. Um, and which she she gives credit to. So it's this kind of innovation and that Black people have always added to this country mm -hmm. in spite of the uh, inequitable treatment. And to just simply say truths, knowing that you're going to get called uppity and a troublemaker and those kinds of things, if you just begin to say, I already know that's coming. I already know I'm going to need to manage that stress. Where are the spaces in which I can navigate that? What I'm doing is for the good of all humankind, because until all of us are free, none of us are free. So mm -hmm. all of this social justice work, all of this kind of activism, which is fundamental to the discipline and the intersectionality of many disciplines from history, social science, policy making, law, is all a part of what we have traditionally been connected to, not mm -hmm. diversion and distraction. And that I don't have to be a drag just because I'm actually, it's like, I'm a lot of fun and I'm still wanting to do substantive stuff. Right. It's, like, it's still going to be a party. It's just going to be a party around not uh, avoidance, but about going right to the heart of the sorrow, the grief, mm -hmm. the trauma, and the, yeah. and the violence that is just a part of what the culture was built on. And they're going to have to come to our party. We, we ain't going to theirs no more. Yeah, you know, and, it, and it's okay for it to be 
uh, in your own image in order to tell a story of what it is to be human. You know, when you know mm -hmm. that human is equated with whiteness, just as a given, as opposed to all people, then you can be very intentional and say, well, I'm going to make sure I tell a story that is centered in humanness, but it has all black, it has a black purview. And some people are just not going to dig it. You know, they're going to find that that kind of equity oppressive because they've had privilege, you know, and the privilege of that has not affected me. You know, that's part of privilege. It's like, that's not a problem for me. It's like, well, that's what privilege is. Right. You know, it's not a problem for you. And in your reality, it's not a thing, but it is for others. There are things that impact other Americans in very substantive, deep and impactful ways. And just because it's not your experience doesn't make it something that isn't a part of what's happening. Mm. And so that kind of erasure, getting gaslit like that for so many Americans is something that is to the detriment of all Americans, North Americans in particular. Right. It's great to be a part of an organization that is supportive of continuing that journey in spite of how difficult and awkward. I have awkward conversations with my, my board, my board president, with my staff. They are awkward. They are full on awkward and uncomfortable conversations. And we just keep showing up for the next one because by having those difficult conversations, we are finding ourselves moving into a very different space about the work, about the governance, about the activity and being able to say, these are the things that will make for a sustainable actors theater in the 21st century. Mm -hmm. It might've seemed incredibly radical and problematic even a year ago, even certainly five years ago, but the cultural times have changed. The economic times have changed, as has the biosphere of where we live and how we live that biosphere changed. And those who adapt will survive and thrive, and those who don't will assure their uh, extinction. Yeah. So do you feel that your your supporters and your your board your your donors are are coming along or are enthusiastic about becoming accomplices in this change? You know, I think it's um it's a mixed bag anywhere you are at any time, you know, um and people are allies as much as they can be at any given moment. Like all of us have the ability since we've all been indoctrinated by a system of oppression and domination to be an actor for uh, the transformative liberation, or to be someone who's uh, obstructionist, who's locked down in fear or a sense of what am I going to lose? And, you know, that's people of all kinds of profiles and different social locations. So I think what people are up for is the adventure of continuing to discover. Not everybody's up for the same journey. Not everybody's there for the same reason. What we're just looking to do is say, is there still enough alignment for all of us to keep doing what we're doing together? You know, and some people opt out and say no. And some people say absolutely. And let's go in. And it's all fair game. I don't think there's anything problematic about evolution and change. Right. Uh, and to find yourself in a space that says, this is no longer what I'm about or what I want to support or I want to invest in. It's like, we might be totally cool interpersonally, but it's like, this is just a dividing line. So, mm -hmm. you know, I, that story's continuing to be written. Um, my board president said to me some time ago, it's like, it'll be interesting to see who comes along, you know? Wow. Um, sure. And I think it'll tax all of us at one moment or another uh, in that journey, because this 400 plus years of a system that is based on conquest, enslavement, misogyny, and capitalism mm -hmm. is no short story. Preach, and exactly. That lack 
nuance and complexity. That's a that's a deep novel that mm-hmm. if you're going to make your way through that and stay with that story, it's going to test you. And so I have love for everybody and anybody who wants to stay in that conversation. Mm-hmm. It's an awkward, uncomfortable conversation. It's ask of all of us to do things that feel very, very challenging and very dangerous. I'm seeing a lot of a lot of white arts leaders right now digging into that very question because I think they want to do something good. They want to affect change. They want to be at the forefront of the conversation. You know, as part of their job description, they are an arts leader after all. So they have to they have to shepherd an organization somewhere. And they're also deeply uncomfortable about where they sit in the conversation and how to how to do it genuinely without sort of that performative activism that is so often associated with that movement, right? So I'm, I'm wondering if you have any insight on how that can happen. I mean, is it is it a time for for white arts leaders to step up? I mean, I feel like it has to be, but... Yeah, I mean, I guess Brian Stevenson's just in my head right now because mm-hmm. I just keep... My podcast is called Borrow Wisdom because I'm like, everything I know and everything I do is about the mentorship of someone else mm-hmm. and with them. I don't try to lead that conversation because there's been so many brilliant people before me who are around now who mm-hmm. I'm just trying to synthesize their brilliance. And one of the things that I've heard very recently and uh, kind of following his articulation is that it is just a moment that kind of synthesis is necessary. And yeah. that kind of showing up in that way, that's just how you meet the moment, however imperfectly. Mm-hmm. And uh, to watch him do that through policy, mm. through the law as the key strategy, I think it's a good uh, indicator and it's a clear path for us to follow ourselves, to say it is not interpersonal, it is not uh, a focus on the interpersonal is probably less effective than on the policy and the, and the key strategies that assure a certain kind of liberation well after any of us have shuffled off this mortal coil. <laughs> Right. And, and the, that idea of thinking about the future, the children being the future, and some of the challenges that I've seen with the generations behind us, uh, I guess the millennials and exennials, is really kind of this lack of, I don't, I don't know if it's cultural lit- literacy or, or even a, a disconnection from tradition. Because you talk about Dr. Fletcher and what she gave you and how that tradition formed a shield that allowed you, to, that enabled you to navigate the space. And I'm finding that a lot of younger people don't have that. Yeah, and it, and it really concerns me, especially now with what's going on. And I mean, with the world changing as rapidly as it is, that we haven't given them the tools to navigate resistance, to navigate this idea of equity. I, I had this class uh, with with students who were black and white, and it was interesting because you, normally when I teach mostly black students at HBCU. It's like you know we're going to talk about poetics, but we're also going to talk about drama of Nomo by Paul Carter Harrison. Because it's important, mm-hmm. it's important to you as a Black artist to know that there is a tradition of aesthetics that's related to who you are and the way you tell stories. And we're yeah, also talking right. about theater, you know, theater of, of, of the oppressed. So it's, yes. it's like, so it's interesting to me that I, I think it's becoming more and more important for all younger artists, regardless of their ethnicity, to have this solid foundation in who they are culturally, but also in other cultures. Because I do think this one-sided Western cultural aesthetic is actually causing more problems uh, when it comes to us trying to negotiate equity in the current situation. Yeah. And I'm curious as to what might be some of the strategies that we can use as older artists to help them sort of navigate this. 
Well, you know, I mean, again, I like to go to our historians and our social scientists and Nell Irvin Painter. Mm-hmm. Uh, her book, The History of White People, is just one of the texts that helps reify the idea of the social construct of white being a race. Right. Mm-hmm. Uh, as opposed to white as the default human and everything else is marked. If you're Jewish, if you're black, if you're a woman, if you're a queer, if you're disabled, if you are, uh, you know, whatever, those are the things that are marked. Uh, A black university, a deaf school, a women's college, but everything else is just a college or a school, you know? And it's like, that's been damaging. That's damaging to people who identify as white, Uh, not to know your history as a white person Mm. as that social construct in that history leaves you rudderless as well as we've seen with black people who don't really understand the complexities of their historical background at this juncture my responsibility first and foremost is kind of like on a plane with a mask it's like you got to get that mask on yourself if it's going down so that you can give oxygen to to Mm -hmm. the neck right and uh, yeah you have to survive so part of it is learning to privilege yourself not out of narcissism but out of self-care and self-love and inoculating yourself from messaging that hampers you showing up in Mm -hmm. service to all fellow human beings. And uh, the enemy is not white people. The enemy is racism. Mm -hmm. You know, the enemy is not, it's these systems of oppression, these systems of domination, that that matrix is what is corrosive and problematic. Knowing that anyone can be an actor of those oppressions also is clarifying right because then you don't be confused with like oh i thought they were an ally and now they're doing this and now they're doing that it's like you know the disruption of that indoctrination uh is imperfect you know so any one of us at a, it's the importance of community have people say i don't know your thinking on that robert is a little colonized for me and here's mm-hmm. what i think right. mm-hmm. and knowing that somebody can approach me with that without a sense of i'm gonna be put off because I'm, there's no way that I don't have colonized thinking. There's no way that I don't have patriarchal thinking. I, there's no way that I don't have homophobic thinking. And my social location has nothing to do with that. It's like I went through the same educational system as my peers. You know, I had a right. conversation with a friend from high school. I hadn't talked to this this guy probably since we left high school. And we're both queer people. He's a white queer person, lived in Kentucky with his partner for some time. And we were just catching up, just having a moment of trying to check in of like, what was that experience Mm. growing up in Frankfort, Kentucky, knowing we had these social locations and the kind of challenge we were under? This is the kind of evaluation that I think Dr. Winona Fletcher, she didn't have to tell me about it. She didn't have to refer a book. She just embodied Embodied it. it. So that's the tricky part of it. There's a lot of talk now. There are a lot of books now. There's a lot of commodification of critical race training and, and like therapy, it varies in quality. You know, I went through a lot of bad therapists and had a lot of good ones. Uh, I've gone to some critical race trainings that I thought, well, that wasn't quite as rich as the, you know, the Racial Equity Institute one, you know. Mm-hmm. So it's like there's a little trial and error with that. You know, not all of them are equal value, but they're all worth getting. You know, if you don't know where to start, you know, you do your best try at it and just keep iterating. And keep looking for the people who embody it as much as they talk it, because there's a lot of talk and then there's doing. 
Mm-hmm. And the real question is, who's actually doing, who has metrics where you can see mm. their money is where their mouth is or their behavior seems consonant with what their policies and their actions are? If those things don't line up and, and frequently they don't, that's the place where one's attention has to go. And mm-hmm. I don't know if it's calling out as much as it's just drawing one's attention to the disconnect, you know, because it's like if we're trying to create healing and that kind of thing, any kind of drawing attention to for some people will feel like calling out if they're feeling sensitive to that, if they think they're implicated, if they somehow think that it has to do with them as opposed to a system and they just happen to be an actor in that system. I think it's difficult for us in this age of individualism to just think, hey, there's been a lot of people before, there are going to be a lot of people after. You are a special snowflake, but you are not that special. There's a lot of, <laughs> a lot of right. So yep. better to just align yourself with something bigger than yourself. That's, to me, the secret, is to not try to distinguish yourself, but be a part of something that you think is worthy of your life energy. Right. Uh, and I saw that in Dr. Fletcher. She modeled that. I am a, a student of the theater and life, And she did that through her whole career. Didn't matter which uh, academic institution she was in or where she was doing that work. She stayed dedicated to the theater and did that her whole career. And to me, that that was a worthy cause because of the way that she uh, embodied herself within that and the focus on service first as opposed to self. Oh, and I love the idea of, of, of embodying liberatory practice and like that Mm -hmm. in and of itself being a practice and being an ongoing practice that we have to work at hard every single day. Adaya, you you posted, Adaya, you posted something the other day that really stuck with me and it's a a, a tweet from Viet Thanh Nguyen and it says, writers from a minority, write as if you are the majority. Do not explain, do not cater, do not translate, do not apologize. Assume everyone knows what you're talking about as the majority does. Write with all the privileges of the majority, but with the humility of a minority. Mm. And I mean, that, that for me really encapsulates this idea of centering your narrative, not out of a sense of narcissism, but out of a sense of, of knowing who you are and where you come from and, and let people catch up. Because, you know, if folks do their own learning, that's going to get them much farther than, than us telling them what's what, you know. Amen. Right. Amen. And, 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 and also, I mean, honor, and this is for everyone, but the honor the legacy and the tradition of your ancestors. So mm-hmm. shout out to Dr. Winona Fletcher, to Joan Lewis, to Carol Mitchell Leon. Mm-hmm. I'm not thinking of people who have, who have impacted you as an artist. It's important for all artists, uh, regardless of, of ethnicity, to know your lineage yeah. and to know the importance of it and carry on those traditions. And it's great to encounter a brother like you who is committed to that life. Yes, indeed. We could have this conversation for another hour, but <laughs> I think we're, we're running up on our time. Yes, indeed. Thank you for coming on, Robert. This was fantastic. Yeah. And it's lovely Thank to see you. you again, as always. And just a shout out to uh, James Baldwin and Tony Morrison. They, yes. they have always been my guides. Here, here. Uh, they'll always be my guides. Okay. Uh, and I'm grateful for everything that they uh, contributed to man and womankind. And I would and, like uh, to I'd like to encourage everybody listening to check out Robert's podcast, Borrowed Wisdom, it's called. Is that right? It is indeed. And uh, you can you can get it on Spotify and Apple Podcasts and all the, the usual suspects. Uh, so after you listen to this episode, check them out. Yeah, I'll I'll be seeing you soon, Robert. I'm gonna I'm gonna come to Louisville soon. Can't wait, my friend. Thank you both so much. This has been uh, so so 
uh, fulfilling. I really appreciate both of you so much. Right, thank you, brother. Likewise, my sir. Adai, yes, sir. How's that peanut butter whiskey t- treating you? Oh, I'm feeling really nice right now. Are you? Yeah, yeah. I just finished, I just finished <laughs> my glass too. I'm, I'm feeling, feeling pretty good blessed too. and highly favored. <laughs> <laughs> well, please stay that way, my friend, until the next time. All right, brother. This was a pleasure as always, and uh, we'll talk to you soon. Old Heads was written and created by E.B. Smith and Adaye Moon in association with Ghostlight Creative. Produced by Nicole Unju Bell. Edited by Vern Good. If you're enjoying Old Heads and want to hear more and support what we're doing here, head over to Patreon and support our page at patreon.com oldheads. Thank you so much for listening, and we'll see you next time.